0: Today, I'd like to welcome Miss Jessica Gibson-Kendrick. She is a licensed professional counselor. At um, She's a counselor and owner of Counseling and Recovery Guidance, a private practice in Louisiana, I mean, I'm sorry, in Lafayette, serving individuals and families affected by addiction. Jessica regularly works with families in crises of addiction, guiding families through intervention, treatment placements, and recovery with family support, education, education, and psychotherapy, and I thought this would be a perfect topic, especially now during such stressful times. So, thank you, Miss Jessica, for joining us. You will have to dial, dial star six to unmute yourself. Thank you, let me know if I got that right and hitting the you, right you unmute button.
1: Great, you did. Okay, so. Thank you so much for, for having me and um, and I, I really enjoyed hearing the initial conversations. It was super encouraging to hear about all of the resources that are available. Um, it, we're, we're we're certainly in a really challenging time, and um, we do get a lot of questions about what to do and where to go and Is this normal? And um, and I love that you guys are providing so much support and resources. Um, so so thank you and and no problem, I. Can be on the call until uh, about eleven, eleven o five or so, and then I'll, I'll have to go. Um, so I'll try to wrap it up with enough time for whatever questions you guys might have. I absolutely love questions, um, so please feel free uh, at, at the end. Um, but my name is Jessica, and uh, I'm from this area. I grew up in a little small town, not too far from Lafayette, um, and and we had you know just kind of normal. South Louisiana childhood, um, including struggles with substance abuse in the family. I had a family member who struggled pretty rough with substances for a long time, and it really took a toll on our family. Um, and, and that's you know saying it with, with a lot of really clean language. There's, there's a lot of detail that could go into that one, but um, I say that because That's part of what opened the door for me to take a look at this field and um, to look at what was helpful for our family and the families that we got to know through this process, um, what was not helpful, um, and to be able to share that information and just kind of do the best that I can helping out families that are struggling with substance abuse or substance misuse. We could use the word addiction in there. I'll tend to use a lot of that stuff interchangeably when I talk about it. Um, somebody said once, and this statement just truly resonated with me, and I, I wish I knew who to credit this statement to, but what I heard was that you either are the person or you love the person who struggles with substance abuse. And um, I, I may be a bit biased at this point in, in the field that I'm in and the experiences that our families our families had, but um, that's a pretty true statement for me. Um, it's very, very rare that I, I meet a person who doesn't fit that, that you either are the person or you love the person who struggles with substances. We, before the coronavirus pandemic, we, um, we had a lot of chatter about an opiate epidemic. And I'm pretty sure everybody's heard something along that nature. And now we're talking about, you know, a a viral epidemic, coronavirus. And um, we've seen an increase in substance abuse in our practice. And. And you may already be aware of that in, in your personal situations um, or know someone who's going through something similar to that, but um, their experiences with coronavirus has changed the way that, that we live and, um, and the way that we behave as Americans, Westerners. And so now we have a lot of folks that are at home and struggling with um, how to live differently, whether that's even related to school or employment or suddenly everybody's home trying to get along in the same household. Um, there's lots that's going on with that. So just in our practice and in conversations with other professionals, we're certainly identifying an increase in substance abuse as we as a nation go through this, um, this pandemic. So saying that because I want you to know that you're, you're not alone if that statement resonates with you. And I'll give you guys some resources too towards the end about you know, if this is something that is touching you or your family, your friends, um, where to go to get a little bit more assistance and conversation Around this, um, but first, I'd, I'd like to say that you know we we treat this and talk about this, meaning addiction, as a disease, a chemical dependency. It's a disease, um, and I know the first time that I heard that statement, I thought, mm, no, it's not. Um, it looks like a choice. Um, the the symptoms and the consequences that are associated with chemical dependency looks very much like the person is choosing to live this way. Part of the the definition says that we continue to use despite negative consequences. And so when I looked back at our family situation, um, our person was using despite some pretty significant um, legal and relationship consequences. Um, there There were fines, there was a little bit of jail time. Um, There was a lot of disconnected um, and severed relationships and friends and family, and yet it was baffling. Why did he continue to use despite all of these consequences and simply the fact that we just loved him tremendously and and wanted him to be healthy? Um, So there's a process that goes on in the brain where we can understand it as an addiction, but it's very hard as you know, we we can't really see inside someone's brain without using some medical technology. And so the the behaviors that show up in addiction that might be dishonesty or theft or um, maybe more mental health uh, symptoms like, you know, some increased anxiety or some depression, you might see some physical symptoms of um, significant weight loss or infections that are associated with the lifestyle. Um, it looks like our person is choosing to live this way. And so maybe some other time on another call, if you guys are interested in this, we could talk a little bit more in detail about what's going on inside that person's head in the brain that lets us, you know, qualify this as a disease. That's a whole, you know, big discussion in itself. But we do treat it as a disease. Um, and, and I had a family member tell me once, you know, I, I don't believe that, um, because it looks like a choice. What we can't see that's going on with the person that they are not choosing to do at that time is crave. Right? So the person may choose in a moment to not uh, take the drink or um, use the substance or even you know, gamble. We can lump some of the process addictions into this as well. And so in that moment, this individual may be able to choose to not use. But what you and I can't really see that's going on for them on a very real and sometimes very torturous level is the craving that goes on um, and contributing to the continued use despite negative consequences. And so once I understood that um, as a family member going through the process, um, I also had to reckon with the idea that we're not treating this as a disease to let him off the hook. We were treating this as a disease so that we as a family and even the medical professionals working with him could understand what was going on so that we knew what the next best step could be for us as a family to continue to love um, in the best way that we could and take the best care of him that we possibly could while he went through this. Um, So understanding it that way just informs us um, in treatment, and it also um, informs family members on what you can do differently, not necessarily to stop the addiction, but how to continue to live your life cultivating some peace and serenity despite what's going on around you. And that, I think, is, is kind of what, the, what our goal is in working with families. Um, can't make a person not use. We can't make a person stay in treatment. We certainly can't make them want to be sober or get sober, but we can, um, as families and friends and um, even other professionals, continue to make choices that will help us bring some peace and serenity into our lives, take care of ourselves, so that we can continue to be our best selves and then just you know be of service to other people. Um, when we start talking about this, as a disease, family members oftentimes will start to talk about how they've been affected by their person's substance abuse. So a lot of the calls that that I take take in the office usually start out in a conversation about the individual's um, anxiety or difficulties um, at home, and it tends to stem from relationships. And very, very often as we get into the conversation, we start talking about a person that my client cares about who is struggling with substance abuse. And um, the the client that I'm with will describe symptoms of anxiety or maybe symptoms of depression. And sometimes it looks a bit like some PTSD type symptoms. And when we look at the context with how the person is living, what's going on in their household, and their environment, that anxiety makes sense. And so from that perspective, Um, that client is affected by the disease of addiction, even though that person may not have something that's maybe not diagnosable that's sitting in front of me. They're not the addict. They're not the alcoholic. But they are certainly affected by their loved one's disease. And so um, I think it's important to know that oftentimes the person that that we're working with, the family members and friends, They don't really feel like they're the patient. They're talking to us about someone that they see as a prospective patient. But what I'd like to really highlight about that is while you may not be the prospective patient, meaning the addict or the alcoholic, um, it's very, very relevant and important to recognize that you you may have been affected by your loved one's um, substance abuse. So I love to start the conversation with folks from there, um, really validating your experience of loving and caring for that person. Um, From there, we sometimes kind of segment into this idea of codependency, and uh, and that's that's a squirrely term. There's a couple of squirrely terms when we start talking about this stuff. Um, When I was first told, um, "Hey, you might be a little bit codependent," I got a little bit offended, or maybe a lot offended, because it I was being told that I needed to look at what was going on with me, how I was affected, and and, it took me a little while to work through that. And so I try to really make space for people to be able to work through that, not that there's something wrong with you, but that you've been affected by your person's substance abuse. And we want to take a look at that so that you're not suffering anymore. If you Google something like codependency, you're going to get so – many definitions and they're not bad or wrong or anything but the the problem that i had is that i couldn't remember it it's a great definition it made sense but it didn't really stick with me until i heard once and it was probably in a um in an al-anon or 12-step meeting um i heard someone say that codependency is the agreement that i'm going to work harder on your problem than you will and I thought, huh? Okay, so the agreement that I'm going to work harder on your problem than you are. So I started thinking about the situation I was in, and um, a little bit of disclosure with my brother that was that was struggling at the time. And I started to reflect on how hard I was working to make him get sober, or want to be sober, or just live the way I thought he should live, and. A lot of you know, the things I was doing that would have qualified as codependent behavior, um, I did purely out of love. And I know that that's where family members are coming from. They're doing this purely out of love. They want to help. They want to support. They want to encourage their person. Nobody wants their family members to, to really suffer or to cause harm to someone else. Um, but what I had to work with was the fact that I was being codependent, meaning I was working harder on his addiction than he was, so that was kind of difficult to to think through. Um, there's there's an idea out there um, that I first really came to study in one of Melody Beattie's books. It's um, the book is Codependent No More. You could get that pretty much any bookstore or library. It's easy to get online. There's a lot of audible versions of um, of this book. It's been around for quite a while. Um, but in this book, she talks about the concept of counterfeit love. And, um, you know, counterfeit love, when I first read that, I know it like, literally closed the book, put it down, I was a little upset and had to kind of walk away from that for a while because I took that personally because counterfeit meant, means bad or wrong. And in that moment, I felt like I was being told that I was loving my person wrong and I was – that was hard. That was offensive. Um, so come back to it after a little while and really look at what that term meant, um, not so much because I was super excited about doing any kind of personal work. And I know you know, clients are kind of in that same spot too, not that everybody runs to counseling or therapy or some kind of support because you're so ready to do all this personal work, right? We just want to stop the misery or the pain that, that we're experiencing. Um, but I had to go back to it, and it's a, it's a framework for understanding the motives that are happening in codependency. Why was I doing things that I thought was helpful, that it turned out that I was actually mad about? Why was I saying yes to something when I really meant no? And so I would say yes to, you know, whatever the request was at the time, and then I would feel frustrated or feel resentful um, because I felt like I had to do that. And looking at what was going on with me that made me feel like I had to say yes was a super important part of the journey. And so it's a door that I like to kind of open up for families a little bit to say, yeah, you know, there's, there's going to be some things that your loved ones struggling with substances might ask you it might be you know to to pay for something for them or to um, help them get out of some legal consequences or arrange some sort of maybe medical treatment that they can and should be able to take care of um, on their own so taking a look at what's going on um, just relieves some of that guilt or maybe that angst or shame about um, what can I say yes to and what is it okay for me to say no to Um, And and how can we do that in a way that honors what's important to you or what's important to the family, you know, that I'm I'm visiting with? So I think that's an important part. That one's counterfeit love, um, something, too, that we could spend, you know, a good 30 minutes going over all the the little nuances of counterfeit love. It's a challenging one, but I think it's super important. Um, I also have in my notes to kind of touch on this idea of enabling, And um, another squirrely term, there's a lot of definitions for that one out there um, as well. But I like to think of it as um, doing something for someone that they can and maybe should be able to do for themselves. Um, It's a behavior pattern that prevents the addict from experiencing the full consequences of their behavior. Enabling, essentially, it, it allows the individual to be irresponsible, right? And so, where that becomes important is if I'm removing consequences or taking care of things for my person who's struggling with addiction, um, I'm making it easier for them to continue to use. They're not experiencing um, some of the the negative consequences or the discomfort that might. Encourage them to um, to change or do some things differently, or maybe consider um, getting some help for what's going on in their lives. Um, but again, enabling is is it's a squirrely term. There's a lot of definitions for that one too. Um, and I would highlight this so everyone um, everyone's in a different situation. Every story is different. Um, all the the nuances of of each individual's recovery journey or the family struggle is going to be different. And when you take a look at the boundaries or what it is you want to do or not do for your person, that's an extremely important and very, very personal decision. And I believe that no one should make that decision for you. Um, I believe that it's a decision that you make as best you can with your family and people who understand the situation, but ultimately it has to be something that you are comfortable with, right? I believe that we learn to be the expert of our own experiences and that we have the right to ask for what we need, um, be in things or not being, be in things that are um, okay or not okay. So we can make all of those choices, but ultimately it has to be a choice that I'm comfortable with or you're comfortable with And, again, coming from the place that you are the expert of your own experience, you have the right to be able to make those decisions. So make that with a team of people. That might be, um, you know, discussions within your family. That might be leaning on um, a spiritual community. That might be um, talking to um, a counselor. There's also 12-step programs out there where you can find people who've gone through similar situations and they can lead you from what, in using their terminology, is um, experience, strength, and hope. Right? They can say, "Well, this worked for me, but this didn't." And you can take what you want and leave the rest. It's kind really of the beauty of those programs. But I believe that we're um, we're meant to go through life connected to other human beings um, with our loved ones, connected to our community, but in addition to that, connected to something that's greater than ourselves. And that's kind of sticking a foot in the spiritual conversation. But that, I, I believe that's an important part of being a human being. So stay connected um, to a power greater than yourself and to the people, your your loved ones or your community um, that's going to support you in moving in a right direction. When you start to evaluate, what am I doing and what's going to be the best thing For me and for my household so don't do that alone um don't isolate well that's a hot topic right now with what we're going through with um with coronavirus and how we're we're working as a community to protect ourselves and to protect one another um if i feel like that butts up against the idea of social distancing um but i still want to reiterate Don't isolate. That's not the same thing as as social distancing. We can keep respectful distances but still share about what's going on so that we're not emotionally isolated or spiritually isolated um, and not talking about the struggles that we're experiencing in life. I think that's an incredibly important thing um, for us to to remember. When you isolate, um, you lose. When you share with someone who's going to respect what you're going through or loves you enough to tell you the truth, we come out of isolation and we feel more connected to our community and we tend to feel safer when we're connected to others. So one of the things that I think is just truly important, um, I wanted to make sure too that I um, put some resources out there, some things that are accessible to anyone and can help you to figure out what's going on you know if you if you think your person may be struggling with substances what to do how to be supportive things that maybe aren't quite so helpful um there's lots of books um but one of the first places that i encourage folks to start with is that melody Beattie book um counterfeit i'm not sorry not counterfeit um codependent no more that's a, a, a easy to read book it's easy to get your hands on on that book and you can um can sort of spot read that one too, and still get a lot of great information from it. Just helps you figure out, you know, what what might be the next right thing for you, for your family. Um, another good one is um, the Big Book. That's the the AA Big Book. Um, whether you resonate with the AA ideas and principles or not, it's still kind of a good understanding of. Um, what recovery can look like or what one aspect of recovery can look like. And it helped me as a family member, and, and I know others as well, understand what the struggle was like for the person who's, work, who's trying to get off of drugs or um, maybe a dependency on alcohol. So it's a good resource. That one's really easy to get your hands on, too. Um, in all of the communities that I'm aware of, um, especially through uh, South Louisiana, we have a pretty strong recovery community, um, especially here in Lafayette. I know that it exists you know, in, in, in other areas around here, but um, the Lafayette area has a very strong 12-step community. Um, it's it's AA meetings, or AA is Alcoholics Anonymous. There's Narcotics Anonymous. Um, I believe we still also have a DAA group in this area that's Drug Addicts Anonymous. So they're all 12 steps. It's just different flavors of the 12 steps. Those are fantastic resources. They're free. Um, And many of these meetings can be open to the public. If you're not struggling with drugs or alcohol or um, a dependent type behavior, chemical dependency behavior, you might feel more connected to an Al-Anon type group um, or um, a codependency anonymous type group. We have those in the Acadiana area as well. Those are for the friends and family members of someone who's struggling with substances. You can find all of those meetings by um, typing into in your Google or search engine um, AA or Al-Anon, Lafayette, Louisiana or wherever your community is and it should take you to the local website where you can find a list of meetings. I um, mean, just you know, try it and kind of see what you think about that. There are faith-based ones as well, too. Um, And if you want more information on those, it's called Celebrate Recovery. It's a national program. It's 12-step in its nature as well. But it's specifically Christian in the way that it presents its information. So a lot of folks resonate with that one, too, and it's a good uh, resource that's free to the community as well. So I feel like I've talked – quite a bit, and um, looking over my notes, I think I kind of hit some of the, the hot topics that I had to make sure that I covered. Um, but, again, the, my take home with all of this is um, that substance abuse and chemical dependency or substance misuse um, is something that I believe affects pretty much, pretty much everyone. We, we either know someone... We love someone. We are that person who has struggled in that area. And so I love to build healthy conversations about that and remind people that you are not alone in this. Um, talk to people. Don't isolate. Um, get some help and some feedback about what you might be going through. And if there's anything that I can do you know, from from our office to be supportive in that, I would love to be able to do that. For you too. So I think at this point I'd I'd love to be able to open it up to some questions. I'm happy to take questions from you guys.
0: Okay, so what I'm going to do is we have a cool feature that I'm going to enact right now. I'm going to press the button and it's going to give everybody some directions. And then Ms. Jessica, you'll need to unmute yourself because it's going to mute you so you'll need to dial star six. All right, folks, we're going to move into the question and answer. First, I'd like to thank Jessica for taking of her time and her talents to share with us today. Substance abuse is such a sensitive, really just I, a deep problem because you just watch your loved one waste away from substance abuse and you really think that they're choosing that. And so it's hard to understand that you know, all of the things that you mentioned. Um, I'm going to go Google counterfeit love because I thought that's a term I've not heard before, and I was definitely interested in um, learning more about that. But I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us. So you'll need to dial star six if you have a question. Um Ms. Jessica, I want to thank you again so much for joining us. Um, I understand that you, unlike me, you you have work to do. So we're gonna uh, thank you so much for your time. I understand if you hang up, and then I still have a few housekeeping things I want to go over with the folks on the call. But thank you so much for joining us, Jessica, and I really appreciate you taking your time to uh, share with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to spend some time with you guys this morning. And if there's anything that we can do to maybe help be of service to you guys or be um, just another resource out there, um happy to talk about it, too.
0: Yes, ma'am. We will have you back. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. So well, I, I, my, my question really was general, though, um, for, Ms., for Ms. Jessica, Um Um, And that is that uh, the statistics and, you know, everything we've read says that uh, people, African-American people, are much more likely to be labeled criminals than addicts. Mm -hmm. And those of us who have, you know, family members struggling with this disease, can you give some, I don't know, ideas or resources for us as family and community because, African-American people are much more likely to be thrown in jail.
1: Right. Um, One of the cool things about um, building discussions around addiction as a disease is that we're also highlighting that our person struggling with addiction um, deserves all of the rights that a person who might have diabetes, which is also a disease, and we understand diabetes. Right. Um, they deserve the same medical rights as a person struggling with another disease. Um, we, we've been a society, and this is kind of getting into some, like, personal opinion stuff and some discussions that our family has had. Um, I've heard my dad say once that, um, you know, we're pretty fortunate to have gone through this in the period of time, right? And this was probably 1996 to um, my brother. He actually had a fatal overdose in 2008. And looking back on that, one of my dad's Mm -hmm. comments was, you know, we are pretty fortunate to have gone through this in the period of planet Earth that we went through this because there was a period of time where we didn't understand it like we do today, and it was – you were put in an asylum or you were treated as though you were demented or you were affected by uh, demons and, and and people were treated horribly and so then we go through a period of time because we didn't understand what was happening in the brain where all we could see was the bad behaviors and and in Western culture we tend to punish bad behavior but the more we talk about, This is a disease, and understanding the brain functions, um, yes, we do need to have consequences in place for behaviors. However, we also need to take a stronger look at what's happening in the brain so that we can treat this as a disease, treat people with more dignity and respect, um, and still have consequences um, for behaviors but in such a way that's not necessarily criminalizing as much as what we do. Um, and so I know with that, that kind of answer, I've had one foot in personal opinion and experiences, um, which are, are pretty passionate, but I know that there's more discussion that can be had about that. So as individuals learning more about this as a disease and how we can advocate better for a person who might be affected by this disease, that they are treated with the best medical care that we can get for them. Yes, I have a question. Go Go ahead. Yeah,
0: we can go back. For for those who, uh, uh, like, have a brother, I'm sorry, my son, um, is it okay to lay material and literature around, you know, right now, you're not ready to uh, seek um, medical attention, but is it okay to lay down some um, material? uh, some helplines or some sort of way that uh, materials bevel for them so when they're ready, uh, would that
1: uh, add more uh, pressure to the person? So that one's tricky. Um, sometimes that can be very helpful, and sometimes it can be something that breeds a lot of resentment. And, um, and you know your person better than anyone else, and I would give that a lot of thought. Before doing that, um, what could be really helpful though is is to have a more of a direct conversation to say, um, I've noticed this, right? And maybe name a behavior. Um, and I'm going to make something up, you know, because uh, I don't know it, really your, your details. But um, you might say something like, I noticed that. You, um, you looked like you might have been under the influence the other day, or maybe you had too much to drink, and I'm concerned. How can I support you? Um, and give them the opportunity to say if they're, if they're okay. ready to talk about it or ready to maybe get some help for what's going on. Um, and then you can say, with that, I came across these brochures or this website, this resource, and I'm going to go ahead and leave it out on the table in case you'd like to take a look at it. And that way you've had a direct conversation and then left the information for your person to take a look at. I think that's the way to do it without breeding some resentment um, in the relationship.
0: Oh, thank you. That's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful idea. Thank you so much. You're
1: welcome. Great question. Thank you guys so
0: much.